Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Okay, welcome back. Um, this is the time when we go around and say our names. My name is Jay Corbett. I'm Mark. Ed. John. Peter. Baruch. Joe, good. Peter. I'm Kay Matsuda. Tom. I'm Bill. Reggie. Philip. Scott. John Wilson. Kurt. Harry <coughs> Mark. Ray Dyer. David. Will. I'm Tom Berlin. Bob McMullen. My name is Tage. I'm Flint Slider. I'm Doug. Brian Cross. Jen Stewart. Jack Busby. My name is Jerry Jones, Rod, Jack Ivan, Richard, Steve Carson, I'm Richard, Marv, Peter, Craig Wenzel, Michael, Howard Deport, Greg, Cass Brayton, George, Yuva, Larry, Chris, Brown, Harley, Michael Reed, Kyle, George, Scott, Mary. Tony, Anthony. Anyone here for the first or second time? So welcome these people. After our talk, we will have uh, tea and cookies and a little social time. So our speaker today is uh, Jack Morin. And Jack has been studying the mysteries of Eros for over three decades as a psychotherapist and sex researcher. He's the author of books such as The Erotic Mind and Anal Pleasure and Health. And he lectures on the paradoxes, challenges, and uh, potential of sexuality and intimate relationships. And today he's going to give us a talk on erotic energy. Please welcome Jack. Thank you very much. Actually, our topic today is erotic integrity. You were close. <laughs> close enough. <laughs> but it really is a pleasure to be here uh, with you all um, to talk about two of my favorite uh, subjects, which are integrity and eroticism. Um, and uh, I wanted to mention you know, that I'm not a practicing Buddhist, uh, but that uh, I would say that I've been quite influenced uh, in many ways by Buddhist thinking and principles, and I think you may see that, or I hope you will anyway, um, in uh, some of the ideas I want to share with you uh, today. I thought a good way to begin would be to uh, say a little bit about how I got into both integrity uh, and sexuality in my own life. It won't surprise you in the least to know that uh, I got interested in sexuality uh, initially, uh, out of the knowledge, a deep knowledge, very early in my life that I was different. <coughs> um, and that included 
or was really mostly, in my case, different sexually. Um, I didn't know exactly how or what that meant, but that that was a fact. Um, and so um, that did cause me a great deal of distress, but it also led me to be something of an inner explorer. Um, I took a great interest in trying to understand myself at first, um, and then um, I'm not sure if this is a good thing or a bad thing, but I would say by the age of 10, I started reading psychology. <laughs> and in the uh, 1950s, uh, this was not a pretty picture for anyone who was in any way different sexually, because the trend virtually across the board was to pathologize any difference. And if there was any attempt made to understand what might be going on behind a sexual difference, uh, it seemed to only be motivated by the desire to change it or get rid of it. Um, and this, I realize in retrospect, um, was a time where I began to develop my own sense of personal uh, integrity, and that is even though I was still hide in hiding, um, I knew that what I was reading was to a great extent a bunch of crap. Um, and to put it mildly, and that um, my, I began to trust my own observations and experiences in small ways, even back then. Um, then uh, an in interesting thing happened for me is that I was raised uh, as a, a Christian, a, a Methodist, and uh, was involved in it growing up and, uh, and also in my adolescence, and I found it uh, quite meaningful at that time. Um, and even though I, uh, I did uh, go on in my undergraduate studies to study psychology, um, at some point I made the decision to actually go to seminary. Um, and I, I got a Master of Divinity, Divinity degree. I don't know how they ever came up with that name, but uh, it was a terrific experience uh, in my life. But here was another uh, point that came for me uh, where I had to get in touch with and honor my own personal truth, and that was that uh, Christianity was not going to be my path. Um, and I returned, of course I never left really, the study of psychology. Uh, and um, some 33 years ago, um, I uh, entered into my own practice uh, as a psychotherapist. And that uh, part of that, I've always had broad interest in the types of people uh, that I work with, and I'm a very lucky therapist in that um, I see so many different kinds of people who are working on so many different kinds of issues uh, that uh, my interest in doing this work has not waned in the slightest. In fact, I get more interested in it uh, um, all the time. But in spite of the variety that, uh, that I've had the good fortune um, to work with, uh, I've always had uh, a desire to understand um, the sexual and erotic experience, that part of the human experience, uh, because not only of my own struggle to come to terms with myself, but by that time my interest had expanded greatly into also what makes other people's sexuality tick. Um, and uh, I began uh, asking questions 
One of the things that I found right away, um, and then I cultivated it ever since, is that uh, if you actually ask people about their erotic experiences on the deepest level, uh, and uh, without any interest in judging or categorizing them, but simply to understand, that people will begin to reveal to you truths that they have never spoken before. Um, and uh, I'm so glad I discovered this early on because I've been doing it ever since. And, uh, and so the people that I've worked with in my practice have taught me uh, basically almost everything uh, that I know. Um, I made another interesting um, decision. I think it had to do with my early realization about the limitations of psychology, um, that um, I really uh, realized that I needed some way to counterbalance uh, what can happen in psychotherapy where, let's say, you see that someone is suffering and maybe you also see that they're dealing with some kind of an unconventional or difficult turn-on in their lives, um, it's really easy to conclude that the turn, the unconventional turn-on is the cause of their suffering. And uh, this, you see this throughout the psychological literature, which can be a huge mistake. Um, and so I decided I needed another way to counterbalance that tendency to make sure I didn't fall into that. So I developed um, what came to be known as the Sexual Excitement Survey, uh, which you can find in the back of my book if you're interested in the erotic mind. It's also all over, easily available all over the web, which basically asks people to uh, write anonymously and in detail um, about the two most fulfilling, exciting experiences sexually of their entire lives. Um, and then uh, there are also their ideas about what made it so <coughs> memorable uh, and exciting. And then there's a whole other part about fantasy where I ask people to, uh, to reveal, again anonymously, um, the most exciting fantasy uh, of theirs, you know, the number one on their fantasy hit parade. Um, and uh, again, their ideas about what uh, makes that so meaningful and powerful and compelling. Um, to them, and then it became my task, and uh, has continued to be, to analyze the content of what people were telling me um, in their stories without reading anything into it, no reading between the lines. Um, and um, actually, it was uh, not only my work as a therapist, but it was that combined with my analysis of the sexual excitement survey that led to the ideas that I try to articulate in the uh, Erotic Mind book. Um, and people, uh, since the survey is in the back of the book and it is on the web, uh, the Erotic Mind came out in uh, 1995 and it was originally uh, uh, only based on uh, the in-depth descriptions uh, in the survey of less than 400 people. Um, so, and each person was uh, describing uh, three peak erotic <laughs> events. So I was studying about 1,200 peak erotic events at that time, which you can learn a lot um, by studying that. But uh, since then, I now have uh, well over 7,000 respondents uh, that I'm studying. And uh, I, uh, uh, it's, uh, my uh, uh, awareness is growing even further as a result of that. 
Um, in fact, I'm trying to get myself geared up to do a whole new edition uh, of the Erotic Mind where I can include some of the new uh, findings that I have. Um, and so that's kind of the story of where I ended up um, in terms of uh, my interests today. Um, I thought I might begin with some definitions. Um, um, let's start with integrity. Um, and uh, I knew that integrity was related to another important word in life and in psychology, integration. Uh, I didn't know, though, until fairly recently, uh, when I took the time to look it up, that the Latin root of both those, uh, integrity and integration, is entire. Um, in other words, uh, uh, to have integrity is to be in a state of completeness, or undividedness, um, a sense of being a whole person um, and not at war with oneself. Um, and uh, I realized when I saw that that uh, no wonder um, integrity uh, and its development is one of the central challenges, I think, of all of our lives um, because uh, we are really made up of, in so many ways, different parts or aspects or dimensions, and the challenge of integrity is to find a way to bring all of these together, making a place for everything, um, including the things that we find to be most unacceptable within ourselves. Um, in other words, integrity uh, for the self involves making room um, in our conscious sense of who we are, um, for everything. If we don't do that, um, the things that we reject or deny will go into our unconscious mind, um, what Carl Jung called the shadow, uh, and the material that resides in the shadow will fester uh, and will uh, cause us enormous suffering um, along the way, and often will control our behavior and our experience of our lives in ways that we never uh, expect. Um, so integrity has a lot to do also, therefore, with becoming increasingly conscious. Um, now obviously integrity is never complete, the cake is never cooked, you know, it's a work in progress. There's always more to discover, um, and uh, really, the goal of integrity, another way to put it, uh, is to accept uh, this fact that it's incomplete, that there's always more to discover, um, and uh, that uh, it has to do with making room for conflicting motivations within ourselves, uh, as well as uh, conflicting emotions, as well as even sometimes conflicting goals. We want one thing, and we may want the other opposite thing as well. Um, and uh, so what happens as we develop integrity is our, our consciousness becomes increasingly complex and you might also say messy uh, because <laughs> there's a lot more that we're able to work with um, and some of it doesn't go together very well. So this is the challenge of integrity. Uh, now, what about eroticism? Um, I've developed my own definition. Uh, I, one of the things I've noticed in my studies of eroticism is that nobody really exactly agrees on what it is. Um, and, uh, but my definition, um, if it makes sense to you, uh, is that eroticism 
is the interaction of arousal and orgasm with the challenges of living and loving. Um, uh, in other words, uh, eroticism really has to do with all of the places where sex meets everything else in life, which happens to be all over the place. So eroticism is, uh, not, is uh, infinitely more <coughs> complex in many ways um, than sex is. Here's another difference, is that arousal and orgasm, which are things we might call sex, or a part of it anyway, these are inborn capabilities, um, and even fetuses have orgasms and arousal. Um, and so, uh, unless there's some uh, problem, most of us are born with these capacities. But eroticism has to do with, as we grow and develop over time, um, how our experiences uh, interact with our inborn capacities for arousal and orgasm. And so eroticism is the way we give our own personal shape to our sexuality. Uh, no two erotic selves are alike as a result. Um, and also as a result, uh, variation is without any doubt the most striking characteristic there is of human sexuality. Uh, and the closer you look, the more variation that you see. Um, see what now, what I've noticed is as we give shape to our sexual experiences uh, through our eroticism, there's two main trends uh, that, uh, that at least I see. Um, and this shows up in my uh, work in therapy, and it also shows up um, you know, very strongly um, in the analysis of the peak erotic experiences that people have told me about um, in my uh, survey. One of those trends is our eroticism is greatly influenced by the experiences we have that are um, basically the most positive experiences of touch of connection um, and of our curiosity about our own bodies, our own selves, and those of other people. In other words, this is the positive trend. This is what's been good. This is what's been uplifting. This is what makes us want to come back for more. But the other trend, um, equally important, I would say, are the challenges and the struggles and the hurts that we faced as we grow up. And these struggles and hurts um, find their way into our erotic lives inevitably um, because part of what eroticism, it turns out, is all about um, is uh, to find a way to heal and transform hurtful and unfinished emotional business um, into self-affirmation and pleasure and transformation. Um, and so the erotic adventure is really intertwined with healing at a very uh, deep level. And so when we look into our eroticism, we are looking at the things that have been pleasurable, for sure, but we are also going to start looking at the things that have been painful and difficult because it's all there. Now, uh, what this means is that um, in erotic life, we find um, 
representations of a lot of things that aren't just pleasurable. It's not just about fun and games. We find a lot of things where uh, uh, ways in which we're uh, reenacting uh, a very unpleasant, difficult things. Um, and the purpose of the reenactments, I believe, is to find somehow um, a different outcome, a different way to understand or relate to or integrate the things that have been difficult for us. Um, now, I suppose um, finding um, the self-acceptance that uh, is a part of uh, erotic integrity um, is maybe a little easier for people whose uh, erotic preferences happen to coincide um, more closely with the, uh, the norms, the social norms uh, of the, whatever groups we are a part of. But one thing I've learned uh, through uh, my analysis of the peak erotic experiences is that if um, uh, pretty much anybody that I have any knowledge of, if you look closely enough, and if a person is comfortable enough to reveal their erotic truths, uh, that nobody's sexuality is completely conventional. There simply is no such thing. Um, because uh, it involves all the messy complexities of being a human being, including the full range of emotions, um, and it's not difficult at all to not just only find love and affection and tenderness and the desire to connect in our erotic uh, uh, interests, but it's also very easy to find anger, hate, um, uh, fear, guilt, um, and actually these uh, so-called negative emotions uh, often become aphrodisiacs for people. They charge up um, our excitement. Um, and so uh, in order to really come to a deep un understanding of our erotic selves, we have to be prepared to see and somehow uh, deal with all of those different aspects of who we are. And it's not, um, it's not all pretty. Um, let me see. Now, the more unconventional our turn-ons are, and as gay men, uh, we have we begin uh, with a lot of unconventionality right there. Um, but uh, uh, then, uh, as human beings, uh, in addition to being gay men, um, we will find that uh, uh, there may be a lot of other unconventionality uh, in our turn-ons because of the issues that we're grappling with and because of where we've been and what we have come through and the things that uh, have uh, affected us in our own development. <coughs> what I've noticed is that uh, the more unconventional a person's turn-ons are, the more vulnerable they are to developing shame and self-hatred about it. Um, and uh, shame and self-hatred are the arch enemies um, of erotic integrity because uh, integrity basically seeks to understand and accept and enlarge um, shame uh, and um, self-hatred tend to have a hiding, shrinking, holding back um, effect on a person 
Um, and instead of becoming more and more of who we are, uh, when under the influence of shame and self-hate, we become less and less of who we are um, as time goes by. Um, and uh, so those, and I work with a lot of people with a lot of shame about a lot of things, um, is that um, uh, finding over time the path to a deep acceptance of those things that have made us feel shameful and self-hating, um, uh, it is the path um, uh, way out of shame. It's the only one that I know of. Um, and uh, what a lot of people want to do, of course, when they feel shame about themselves, some aspect is they want to get rid of whatever that part is that they're ashamed of. Uh, this doesn't work, because what we try to fight off as you know, only grows stronger. Uh, and so uh, it's not about fighting the things that make us feel shameful. It's about embracing them. Um, and that, too, is where integrity comes into play. Um, now, um, it's often asked, understandably, how does one cultivate this self-acceptance that I'm talking about? Um, first of all, I'm, uh, I'm just going to mention a few things. It's important to realize that, um, in fact, crucial, I would say, that for the most part, we do not choose our attractions and our turn-ons. They evolve in us, but we don't choose them. Um, now, we may choose to uh, uh, explore uh, something different um, uh, or expand um, our erotic interests because it seems interesting to us or whatever. We can make that choice. But... Most of our choice really involves how we're going to relate to and deal with the turn-ons that we find ourselves having. Um, because it's, uh, these things begin their development way before uh, we're even capable of making uh, choices of this type and of this complexity. Um, and. Uh, that is why we basically have the eroticism that we find. And then the challenge becomes, what are we going to do with it? Are we going to embrace it? Or are we going to fight it? Are we going to deny it? Um, or are we going to accept it? Um, and of course, I'm very much on the side of, of acceptance, as you well know. Um, one of the best antidotes for shame that I know about is selective self-disclosure. Shame wants to hide. Um, disclosure is revealing the truth. And so when someone's struggling with shame, one of the suggestions that I will make very often um, is that uh, they select at least one person, if they haven't done so already, to talk about the thing that they're most ashamed of um, and uh, coming out of the darkness, uh, uh, so to speak, um, and uh, being less secretive about it begins to heal the shame. Um, and then, um, also, I think it's important to be mindful of those things within ourselves that we simply are not yet ready to accept, or we have not discovered how. Um, and to accept this, um, and um, not be discouraged about it, um, but to see this as an ongoing um, thing that we, uh, we have to do. Um, let me see... Uh, just want to make sure I use the time well here. Um, 
I want to give you an example uh, of uh, kind of how um, this uh, shame thing uh, works. Now, and the example, let's say, involves somebody, um, and I'm sure you know people like this, or maybe have experienced it yourself in some way. Uh, I'm thinking of a person who is feeling out of control. Um, in their sexual life. In other words, the decisions they make or their intentions seem to count for nothing. Um, they're driven in some way to repeat sexual things, whether they're satisfying or not. They're, you might say, compulsive, or some people would say uh, um, it's addictive, um, which is a term that I don't really apply in this case, but that is another uh, subject. One of the things that I will do in working with someone who has this out-of-control experience and is suffering as a result is I will propose to them that they begin by simply doing one experiment, and that is the next time they do whatever it is that they compulsively do, to only change one thing, and that is to skip the self-trashing that usually comes afterwards. <laughs> to stop it, to just, you know, okay, I did it, there it goes again. Um, and, uh, but this time, I'm not gonna rip myself to shreds about it. I'm going to just uh, look at it and also uh, think about, now I wonder why I did that, become curious about it, but not trash it. Interesting thing is, almost everybody can do this. This is extremely doable. Um, but, uh, and when they do, a person will report, though, two things. One is an instantaneous, or virtually instantaneous, reduction in the inner, inner turmoil uh, that accompanies that feeling of being out of control um, and uh, much more relaxed um, and much less of the pain that comes from the self-trashing um, if you skip that part. But the other thing that people are going to notice um, very often is uh, a reduction in erotic intensity. Uh, that without <coughs> the self-trashing and the pain, that uh, it's not quite as hot. Uh, it's like part of a cycle. Um, and that, um, so some people will find themselves uh, basically uh, returning to shame because it's a turn-on. Um, and this is really um, a, a huge dilemma, um, and it's not easily resolved, um, but um, uh, it's an important part of uh, the development of erotic integrity in oneself, is to uh, recognize this dilemma. And what I notice with people is if they will stay with it, and continue to recognize what they're dealing with, um, that uh, uh, they will discover that there are times, and that may be one of those times, when integrity requires of us that we abandon a certain form of excitement if that form of excitement promotes shame and self-hate. Some of the excitement has to go, and we have to abandon it and also grieve it. Um, and uh, uh, this too is a part of the development of integrity, um, but this is not a rejection um, of the whole thing or a statement of badness, because if you say I'm going to, I'm turning away from this because it's bad, uh, it won't work. <laughs> uh, uh, when we turn away from excitement that does not serve us, 
we are doing it out of as an act of self-love, which is a totally uh, different thing. Now, I want to spend a little time uh, uh, talking with you about uh, another important dimension, crucial dimension of erotic integrity, and that is shared erotic integrity. So far, I've been talking about developing integrity with oneself. Um, now, developing it with another person, um, perhaps a partner, for example, um, is not always uh, or rarely as easy as some people may think, especially those who believe that love conquers all, um, because uh, uh, love doesn't always conquer all. Um, here's the challenge, basically. Um, with erotic integrity within oneself, um, we're making room for who we are and discovering our, and embracing our own truths. Um, in shared erotic integrity, we're finding a way to make room for two people to be their true selves in the presence of each other. Um, and this can lead to conflict and to lots of sparks, um, both exciting sparks and uh, fighting sparks as well. Um, and we may also uh, discover along the way, and we almost always will in certain ways, that um, the, uh, the two selves who are attempting to find integrity with each other um, will discover almost inevitably certain ways in which they're out of sync or they do not match um, at all. Uh, it's interesting because um, particularly when a relationship starts out in a more traditional romantic form, when we fall in love and we have you know high romantic charge and we dream about the person and long to be with them, uh, this state of early romance has the capacity to um, mask or render temporarily <coughs> irrelevant an incredible range of differences, including erotic differences. In fact, in people's sex lives, more often than not, if they're in love or when they're in love, uh, sex usually goes pretty well, um, and uh, that's because partly uh, they're so glad to be together and they're in a state of high cooperation and so forth. Um, but as time goes by and they settle in and begin to learn more um, about uh, who they are really with, um, <laughs> including the parts that don't make them walk on air, um, <laughs> Uh, then um, the, uh, the challenge of uh, shared integrity becomes greater. Um, but it also opens up a tremendous array of possibilities for deeper intimacy. And uh, speaking of deeper intimacy, I would like to give you uh, my absolute favorite uh, definition of intimacy. There's lots of different ones around, uh, as you uh, know. But the one I like is intimacy... Uh, is the ability to become more and more one's true self in the presence of the other and to make room for them to do the same. Um, and this is not the easy uh, form of intimacy. This is the challenging form. The easier form might be to um, uh, basically not deal with areas that might lead to conflict um, and to become conflict avoidant. 
um, or to uh, uh, another approach that many couples try is to merge together uh, into a kind of an operating unit where that basically excludes anything that they both don't share in common. Um, and so uh, it's a good recipe for keeping the conflict down, but basically in terms of the integrity, it begins to shrink over time as uh, uh, the areas where they operate in become narrower and narrower and narrower. Um, now, uh, actually doing this form of intimacy uh, is quite challenging, as you might imagine. Um, and, uh, but uh, those who take the risk find that uh, this is the path to the deepest connections that we can possibly have. Um, but there are some huge challenges that we might discover. Um, often after the, especially after the initial high romantic phase of a relationship, people will uh, uh, discover that they have um, sometimes profound erotic differences uh, and incompatibilities. And the question arises, what are we going to do about this? Um, for example, maybe one person uh, uh, will start to reveal um, that they have maybe a strong interest in BDSM and the other one does not. Or maybe one person um, has a long-standing uh, fetish or very specialized uh, erotic interest um, that it turns out the other uh, person is not really interested in or maybe even frightened about. Another thing that happens a lot, um, uh, and I, I see a great deal in my work, is that um, uh, what some people uh, discover um, and, uh, is that after the initial romance wears off, that uh, uh, many people, this is especially true of men, maybe a little extra especially true of gay men, but we also, we also certainly see it in women too, is what I call a love-lust split. There are many people, um, and the reason as gay men we're more prone to this, because it's difficult for us to uh, 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 have our sexual development include dating and learning how to relate to people at the same time, often by the time we're able to begin intimate relations with people, we have already cultivated our own intense, private, inner turn-on that's fully developed, um, that may not be compatible, um, or may not be something that we even want to do with someone that we love and care about. So for some people, as they get intimately connected, they don't want to be sexual. They start to make to feel like, you know, I don't want to do this with this person, uh, and they even feel an aversion. Um, and uh, uh, in working with a lot of these people, um, I can say that uh, there are, uh, this is resolvable, um, but it requires uh, a tremendous uh, development of erotic integrity to do this, because what people have to find is a way to embrace the kind of pure lust that they have developed, and to not put it down, and make a place for it, and at the same time, uh, discover um, their ability to enjoy physical interactions with someone they care about, and to realize that these are going to be two extremely different things. 
um, and that there has to be room uh, for both. There doesn't have to be, but if a person is going to uh, be able to enjoy physical connection with someone they also care for, uh, this is the process they're going to follow. Um, I think this uh, um, might be a, uh, um, a good point to open things up because uh, we're running short of time um, and see if uh, these ideas are making any sense to you or if you have any questions that you'd like to ask. Yes, sir. Yes, and um, in terms of the Buddhist um, emphasis on observing how we increase our suffering uh, with how we use our consciousness, would you, are you saying that shame is the main way that we increase our suffering when it comes to sex? Um, it's a very important way that we do. Um, and uh, shame and self-hate greatly overlap, as you know. Uh, shame is really, um, it's, it's kind of like, uh, it's a method of social control. Shame is something where we uh, are out of sync with the way we think we're supposed to be, right? Or the way we've been told we're supposed to be. Um, uh, self-hatred, I think, um, uh, is uh, really uh, can grow out of shame, but it's something that we do to ourselves. Shame is often done to us, and then we have to deal with it. Um, uh, but self-hate is something that we do in ourselves, and it really has to do with the ways that we basically say to ourselves over and over again, I'm not acceptable, or that we recount our flaws to ourselves. Um, and uh, uh, put way more emphasis on the things that uh, in us that we feel bad about and ignore the, our gifts and the parts of us. And also, uh, a lot of people develop uh, self-hate, I think many of us do, by imposing upon ourselves completely unrealistic standards of what it means to be a human being. And we do this especially in our sexuality, um, that we think it should be this loving, Hallmark cardish type of thing. And it simply <coughs> is not like that. Um, it's much messier. Um, yes, anyone else? When you were talking about in a relationship where you pre-developed your idea of lust, or, yeah. and then you have to fix or, you know, come to a new understanding with your partner so that mm -hmm. you can... Do you never merge the two? They don't merge. Um, uh, the reason is, is that um, the, uh, there's nothing like pure lust that develops on its own. Uh, it's, uh, it's unlike any other experience of sexuality that people have. It's more intense, it's more compelling um, to people, um, and uh, uh, the, uh, the sexual, sensual uh, things that we share with a partner that we care about um, uh, cannot be pure lust because it's a blending of sexual interest with affection and caring. Um, and so uh, actually when people who ha already have a, a strong lust life developed within themselves, and then they meet someone they fall in love with, let's say, or want to be close with, um, one of the first things that they'll realize is that uh, this experience of being physical with the person I care about is nothing like 
my pure lust life. And so what I say to people is I use sometimes a metaphor of what you need to do is become uh, ambidextrous or multifaceted <laughs> in your eroticism, meaning you can have your lust life, but do not expect it to be like um, your sexual life with a loved one. Now, someone who is lucky enough not to have developed this split who has their lust life but has integrated it along the way with experiences of caring, um, then you can uh, lust and, uh, and affection and love can intermingle um, even quite freely. But once, there, once there's a pure freestanding lust life, um, uh, then it's a matter of developing a whole other set of capabilities and learning that uh, these are extremely different, but they can coexist in the same person. So would monogamy then not work for that situation? It can work. Um, there are people who uh, uh, explore their lust, lust life uh, just uh, in their own uh, private uh, sexuality through masturbation and so forth, um, and uh, choose to be monogamous. Um, there are other people who uh, will make the decision to uh, withdraw energy from the lust uh, 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 life that they're used to, um, not in the sense of fighting it off because it's bad or out of any uh, pretense that they can get rid of it, but because they want to give more energy uh, deliberately to learning about um, physical interaction with um, a loved one. Um, and uh, some people find that uh, if, uh, if they keep going with their lust life, that uh, it uh, makes it more <coughs> difficult for them uh, to learn how to connect if they need to kind of... It's like when you're learning anything new, sometimes you have to focus on the new thing, um, because if you go back to the old thing, uh, the new, there's no room for the new thing to emerge. Yeah. Can you say more about, I think you said that um, our eroticism is our own internal attempt to heal ourselves. Yeah. And can you talk about that a little bit more and how that functions towards uh, Yes, although as you might imagine, it's a very large and complicated area. Um, but I think basically um, uh, one of the things that most of us are attempting to do um, in our erotic lives is... Uh, uh, we're attempting to um, basically take something that has caused us suffering or that we've had a struggle about, maybe um, <coughs> doubts about our self-worth, for example, or um, as gay people, um, growing up in an environment where our, um, our, our fundamental interests are prohibited or bad, um, or if we've been mistreated, um, or neglected in some way along the way, that uh, uh, we will be wanting to find a way through our erotic expression to uh, kind of uh, fix that um, by, uh, uh, depending on what the issue is, um, if we felt disconnected and unloved, we may actually find ourselves selecting someone who's very non-expressive and not very loving, but trying and hoping to get them to love us. Um, and uh, it's interesting because in erotic life, let's say if someone's trying to resolve not feeling loved, um, that 
uh, you would think the direct approach would be to just find someone who loves you. <laughs> but it doesn't work that way a lot of times. What, what, what people will do, um, at least uh, um, uh, for a time, uh, will start out being attracted to people who seem distant or hard to get or unavailable um, or not forthcoming um, or very giving, and they'll then try to find a way to bring the love out of them. Um, now, what people do as they grow, and particularly if they can recognize consciously what they're trying to do, um, that makes a big difference because then a person can say, well, if I'm looking for love, then uh, I, I can see that I'm attracted to people who don't love me easily and I'm trying to get that out of them, maybe I'll try selecting someone who's more available or who uh, is ready to love me. Um, and then, but the question arises, am I ready to accept it? You know, so uh, uh, the healing process in eroticism is something that I've studied in, uh, written and talked about uh, a lot. I think it's uh, extremely fascinating and really uh, not nearly enough attention is paid to it. And I, I have said and I totally believe that um, uh, embedded in even the most problematic turn-on that you can imagine uh, is an urge to heal, if you look deep enough. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> where to begin? Yes, sir. Um, I'm curious about your opinions in terms of, in regards to the disease model and, and how that's applied to sexual compulsivity or sex addiction. They call it sex addiction, but yeah. I know there's a lot of controversy about There that. is. I, the only thing I, uh, my big concern about it um, is when you think, think of something in addiction terms, um, uh, like we would with a substance, you know. Um, it's like, uh, well, uh, the easiest thing to do really is just to get the substance out of your life. I mean, we, uh, many of us will try harm reduction or moderation or whatever, but the easiest thing is just dump the substance, and that's not necessarily easy, of course, um, because we don't need it. Um, but uh, if we, had, uh, I, what I see happening sometimes when people uh, talk about their own sexual problems as addictions, that it intensifies their uh, urge to fight with them uh, or to get rid of them, and so um, and, and that is bound to fail. I, uh, one thing that I've said is that if you enter into a war with your eroticism you will lose. There's no, absolutely no doubt about it. Uh, so fighting with problematic sex is not the way to go. Um, I think uh, the, the development of erotic integrity um, and learning how to embrace it, including the problematic parts, and somehow making room for it, um, begins to open up avenues of choice in the matter that we never saw before. I think we're nearing the end of our time, aren't we? Yeah, maybe you take one more question. All right. Yes, sir. Um, well, as last question, thank you very much for bringing such insight to uh, a really complex uh, topic. So I appreciate that. Um, you talked about how you know that which is forbidden or shameful tends to raise the erotic intensity yeah. of an activity. Um, what I'm wondering is your view on whether you think that has something to do with persistence of what we deem as risky behavior that results in HIV transmission. 
Yes, um, I do. Um, well, uh, yes, there's no doubt about it in my mind that, um, uh, you know, especially uh, there's so much involved there because many people, uh, in order to do the things that they really want to do erotically, uh, that they may feel bad about or have not fully accepted, they may need to go unconscious in order to do it. Um, and so if you're unconscious, you're not going to be thinking about, you know, uh, uh, whether it's safe or, you know, uh, you're not going to be taking care of yourself necessarily. So that can happen. Um, and then also, um, it's true that I think for many people, uh, the uh, kind of the risky activities uh, in, in human experience have always been exciting. Um, and... Um, and that's an interesting kind of a contradiction, but it's, it's another part of being human, is that some people more than others do like taking risk and find excitement in that. And some people uh, actually also uh, use anxiety as an aphrodisiac. Um, so by doing things that might be risky, flirting with riskiness uh, for some people is, uh, adds another charge to the whole thing. Now after they've uh, calmed down, maybe post-orgasmically or something like that, then they may have uh, be overcome by fear um, of, of what has. So anxiety, a little of which can be exciting uh, when it turns to fear or terror, what have I done? It's no longer uh, exciting at that point. Um, but then I also just want to put in while you're on the HIV subject that, uh, uh, you know, uh, basically HIV prevention is mainly focused on avoiding the exchange of certain bodily fluids and that uh, human beings want to exchange bodily fluids um, and uh, that uh, we have to come to terms and accept that fact and also integrate that with sometimes we can't uh, in our own self-interest and in the interest of others. Um, so I think it's all of that kind of works together to make it tough. Thanks so much. surgery next week and probably be in a cast for a month or so. So he's uh, in, well, what is in, in Santa Barbara mm -hmm. and uh, I'm sure he, I, I talked with him and I'm sure he would appreciate a call or a card, but he's at uh, his home in Santa Barbara and his cell phone and he's got a landline that's an 805, not his San Francisco number. 
doing fine, but he's gonna have some time to practice his practice. <laughs> <laughs> yes. My, uh, the, uh, the, the gay uh, uh, people, uh, or people, friends of gay people, San Francisco Zen Center, are now instituting a monthly program. We're having our first one coming up, and it's called a welcoming day. It's an opportunity to spend the whole day if you want to get up at 6 o'clock in the morning, or to start with meditation at 9, or lunch, I mean, or, or a lecture at 10. Uh, the first lecture is going to be given uh, by one of our senior uh, teachers who is gay, and will be explicitly dealing, I don't know what she's going to say, but explicitly dealing with that, which has seldom ever been consciously talked about in our lectures. So you know, consciousness is developing. It, it'll be followed in the afternoon with a program just, just for those people who came for uh, the uh, you know, to, to be part of the, the celebration of the welcoming. So you can, and that will go until, until about 3.45. So it's uh, it's kind of historic, you know, the, the San Francisco Zen Center for the first time as an institution marched in the Pride Parade. And uh, uh, those of you who would be interested in just seeing what it's about, uh, you can come, there are flyers outside. We can come in the morning for some of the public programs. We can get up at 6 o'clock in the morning if you'd like to, which I don't feel anymore. Uh, or uh, stay for the afternoon program, which, uh, which would be interesting. Thank you. Thanks. Sure. A reminder that our talks are available on the internet at the GBF website, gaybuddhist.org. No, Howard, I just was going oh, to have the Howard Chad, thanks for being here today. Well, a great gift. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there are plenty of opportunities for service, joyful service in the Sangha. Bill Childs, I don't know if you found someone to fulfill your interest. Yes, in fact. Wow, yes. wonderful. That's great. And yesterday, Clint leads our monthly uh, meal. And do you want to just say, for 10 seconds, what do you do there? <laughs> 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 10 seconds plus five. Okay. There's an organization called the Street Youth Center, which provides shelter and takes care of homeless youth. I think it's probably just 21 or 22. Um, and once a month, we prepare a dinner. The, the, the place is a great place. It feeds and houses people and counsels them and, and, and helps them get back on their feet. But, but their, their, uh, their budget is pretty limited, and the meals they serve are very simple, but, uh, and which is that very simple. So once a month we prepare a meal for um, uh, these kids, and uh, we try to make it like comfort food and, and um, something that's, that's a little above and beyond just a very simple meal. And, and they, they're very appreciative, they love it. So that's one thing that GBF does. GBF funds this, and it's, it's it's going on for about 10 years with different food countries on Market Street Zen. So that's what we're doing. Right, so some of our Donna goes to help fund the, that meal and opportunity for service. And then uh, I sit on the program committee. We're responsible for um, bringing speakers uh, for our Dharma talks uh, to the Sangha. We solicit resources for those speakers from you. So on your journey, if you have come across teachers 
Buddhist teachers, but but uh, even not necessarily so, but who speak to kind of the Buddhist spirit, like Jack has so eloquently done today. Uh, bring those people to our attention. Um, I sit on that committee, Jerry Jones, where's Jerry, and Jimmy Stewart, and Baruch, um, approach us, and also, a seat has opened up. <laughs> we're taking finance, we're taking money for that seat. <laughs> Just put it right out in the open. <laughs> and uh, if you're interested in offering joyful service in the role of program committee, and you have questions about that service, uh, talk to anyone of us. But we're looking for someone to serve, uh, support us in that work. Let's have Jack come back. Next five times. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you'd like that. <laughs> I wanted to come back, but we're going to do practical lessons. <laughs> <laughs> you might like that. <laughs> hey, do we have a host today? Yes. Do you want to do your host announcements? I am a host today. Outside, there are some cookies. There is hot water for tea. Uh, there is a. There will be a dime bowl, which I will walk around with. And it is an opportunity to contribute you know, to the expense of our work. <coughs> uh, the suggested donation is uh, five dollars uh, to eight dollars, uh, or to three hundred, uh, whatever, however generous you feel today. Uh, and uh, if you take some tea. It would be appreciated if you would uh, uh, wash the cup and put it in the rack. And there may be some people here who would like to continue the fellowship after the meeting is over, so they can meet around 12:30 at the uh, at the exit and uh, and go out to lunch together. And you're certainly welcome to come. You're uh, So, uh, have I said anything? Oh, there's a sign-up sheet. Uh, you know, if you wish to become a, uh, a member. Uh, and should people also, if they're interested in the sign-up sheet, also put their name on your list, uh, right? If they want to be in the directory, yes. Okay. So uh, and there's also the opportunity to correct uh, or add your name to the, uh, to the membership list. Okay. Any other announcements? Just everyone, I um, we encourage you to make a point of not forgetting the design goal. Um, <coughs> as you know, all expenses are up, our rent is up. We'd like to pay our speakers well, and um, so we're going to be able to afford wonderful speakers like Jack. Don't forget. Thank you. Okay, let's stand in a circle for the By the power and truth of this practice, may all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness which is without sorrow. And may all live in equanimity without too much attachment or too much aversion and live believing in the equality of all that lives. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.